All right, well, thank you for being here tonight. Let's uh, open in prayer, and then we'll we'll get going. Okay. Father, we thank you for your kindness in allowing us to be here tonight. We just ask now that you be with us in our discussion as we look at the book of Proverbs, and I pray that you'd guide us and uh, give us insight into the book, and I pray that it would be an encouragement to us as we seek to grow in our own wisdom and in our understanding of your word. And so we thank you for this opportunity to be together and to fellowship, and we ask for your blessing upon it now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, uh, I think there was another installment of the notes, so maybe you got that uh, before class started. Uh, we are on page 70, and we'll continue where we left off. All right. Last time we began our discussion and looked at the first speech, the preamble and the first speech, uh, if you recall the structure of the book, the father has ten lectures or speeches that he gives to the son, and uh, within these ten speeches interspersed are five interludes, and these interludes are sort of a pause in the speeches, often for another character named Lady Wisdom to come to the fore. And we encounter this first in chapter 1 and verse 20, uh, where Lady Wisdom makes her first appeal, and she summons the young man to respond to her. So we want to look through this and then discuss a little bit, uh, why does Lady Wisdom appear here? She's a character that is... uh, devoted to the prologue of the book. That is the first nine chapters. So what role does she play and how does she interact with the father in disseminating wisdom to the son? Uh, So let's read these verses uh, beginning in verse 20 and going down through 33. Out in the open, wisdom calls aloud. She raises her voice in the public square. On top of the wall, she cries out at the city gate. She makes her speech. How long will you who are simple love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? Repent at my rebuke, then I will pour out my thoughts to you. I will make known to you my teachings. But since you refuse to listen when I call and no one pays attention when I stretch out my hand, since you disregard all my advice and do not accept my rebuke, I in turn will laugh when disaster strikes you. I will mock when calamity overtakes you. When calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind, when distress and trouble overwhelm you, then they will call to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but will not find me, since they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Since they would not accept my advice and spurned my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them, but whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. All right, so Lady Wisdom steps up to the mic, if you will, and she begins her appeal to the young man to listen to her voice. So I want to just have a little bit of discussion around this particular subunit to look at why does Wisdom appear here What does she accomplish in her speech? And then uh, an interesting feature that I find of her speech is the tone. 
She seems to be very caustic and abrasive toward the son in the sense that uh, she essentially says, if you spurn my counsel, uh, you will be condemned and I will essentially laugh at your disaster. So what do we gain from the tone here of the speech? Uh, So as you heard this or read through this, what are some thoughts about what Lady Wisdom is accomplishing here? Anyone have a thought? Yeah. I don't know if this is directly answering that, but this the part about our laugh and disaster strikes you in our mind. Um, when I was reading through these proverbs, there's parts that say you're not supposed to gloat when something happens bad to your adversary or your enemy. And this seems to contradict that. Right. That's a good point. What she say? She says... Uh, okay. She noticed that when she read through the Proverbs, many Proverbs counsel against gloating when your enemy falls so as to not uh, look down upon your enemy and and find some sort of uh, sadistic pleasure out of it. So why does wisdom seem to take that tack here? Because wisdom being actually the wisdom of God has the right to do that. We being sinners don't. Okay. Right, so she has a universal perspective. So immediately, uh, my mind goes to a passage like Psalm 2, where the Lord says he will sit in heaven and scoff at sinners. Because in his sovereignty, uh, he has a global perspective that we as humans don't have. So the Proverbs, for instance, uh, we alluded to one that says, uh, whoever digs a pit will fall into the pit. In other words, if you're trying to one-up your enemy, there's that boomerang effect that will come back to haunt you, but wisdom, on the other hand, has the divine perspective. As we'll see later in the book, in chapter 8, she was present at creation, delighting in creation. Uh, you almost pick up the, the vibe there that she's like a little child on the playground, enjoying creation. Uh, so wisdom certainly has a different perspective, and it's, it's a rather stern tone in terms of how she approaches the young man. I think, too, the, the punishment seems to me is that she's letting them go according to their own will. Yeah, right. They're, they made their bed, they're going to lie in it. Right, right. So in a sense, there is there is justice here, and it's kind of a Romans 1 progression, right, that the sinner's allowed to pursue the sin, and in turning the sinner over to his sin, she is essentially judging him. All right, well, let's, let's talk about why does she appear particularly at this moment? Remember, contextually, we just ended the first speech, and can someone summarize for me what that first speech was about? Do you remember from last week? What was the father uh, admonishing the son to avoid? Does anyone remember? Gang violence. Okay, gang violence, right, to uh, join up with these uh, unlawful youth that will lead him to a path of easy money and violence. So uh, he's to avoid that. So why does Lady Wisdom appear here, and what is her role? Sort of a trick question, maybe. Any ideas? Tough love, in a way. What's that? (laughs) Kind of like tough love. Tough love, right. So you'll notice, for instance, in speech 1, verse 8, the father augments his counsel by saying don't uh, listen to my instruction and do not forsake your mother's 
teaching. What's interesting is Proverbs is unique in the ancient world for including the counsel of the mother. Uh, Almost no other wisdom pieces in the ancient world did that, so Proverbs is unique. And Proverbs has that female voice that supplements the father's voice at key junctures throughout the book. And this seems to culminate in chapter 31. You remember 31? Uh, the last character in the book of Proverbs is Lemuel, 31.1. And there, in verse 1, it says, These are the sayings of King Lemuel, an oracle his mother taught him. So this speech of 31 is represented as the mother's words to Lemuel, the king. Uh, and it's sort of a culmination because, remember, the reader of Proverbs is probably the naive young man who's a future leader in Israel. And at the end, we have Lemuel, who has taken the throne. He's become a king, and now his mother is counseling him. So all that to say, it seems that Lady Wisdom is sort of the ally to the father to supplement what he's saying by her impassioned appeals. Now, why is she a female character? Why wouldn't Wisdom be a male figure? Why a female figure? Thoughts about that? Have you ever thought about that question, or maybe just taking it for granted? Something more, uh, more practical, you know, not just flying off the handle and whatever. Okay. Right. Well, there may be several reasons for this. One is that the Hebrew word for wisdom is a feminine word. So Hebrew has masculine and feminine words. So that's one reason. But I think there's more to it. Uh, wisdom is to be desirable to the young man. A lot of what the father is saying to the son, he, he grounds in a motivation. If you'll notice, most of these speeches begin, if you do this and if you do this, then this will happen. And he usually then gives some sort of motivation. Either you will uh, succeed, you'll do well, all these sorts of things. So he's motivating a lot of his wisdom by the benefits that will accrue to the young man if he listens and heeds the counsel of his father. So in other words, he's motivated by desire for the right things. He's to be motivated by a desire for good things. So it seems that wisdom here as a female character is to be desirable to the young man as something attractive to him to offset the foolish woman who's embodied in this uh, wayward woman that we'll see in chapter 2 and then 6 and 7. The wayward woman is the embodiment of Lady Folly who speaks in chapter 9. The virtuous wife of Proverbs 31 is the embodiment of Lady Wisdom who speaks now and in chapter 8 and as well in chapter 9. So in other words, we have concrete expressions. We have uh, the wife that the young man is to pursue that is the embodiment of lady wisdom and we have the adulterous woman that the young man is to avoid that's the embodiment of lady folly okay so these are mirror images so wisdom is to be desirable to the young man uh, and she, she makes impassioned pleas for him to accept her and to heed her counsel all right so lady wisdom appears she supplements the father's counsel uh, and how would we characterize her speech? If we look carefully through uh, this speech. What is she essentially saying when she approaches the young man? 
Can somebody summarize the essence of her speech? Well, I would say that she's telling him, you better listen to me, because if you don't, you're going to be in over your head, and it's going right. to be too late. Right. Okay, so uh, she's very direct in saying... Uh, you better listen to what I'm saying, and you get the sense that this is really a, a matter of life or death. And I think that really becomes clear in chapter 2 in the next speech, uh, because wisdom really is a matter of life and death. So in other words, she seems to be communicating, uh, this isn't a game. The young man's very existence, his livelihood is at stake. If he fails to listen to wisdom, he will go down a path that will destroy him. And do we see this in society today, don't we, that uh, young people who fail to heed wisdom uh, often end up pursuing a path that leads to their own demise, uh, if not their death at a young age. All right, so she calls and she's very uh, forceful in her appeal. All right, uh, let's talk about a few things related to the text here. On page 72... Uh, I just want to talk about this idea of uh, waywardness or defection. Uh, Verse 32, uh, the NIV translates it, for the waywardness of the simple will kill them. Uh, This term waywardness or defection comes from a Hebrew term meaning apostasy. And this word will be also a key word in the next speech uh, because if you'll notice... Uh, In chapter 2, the young man is warned against, in verse 16 of chapter 2, the wayward wife with her seductive words. So being wayward here is a symptom of those who are off the path. Remember that Proverbs is concerned with two paths. You're to keep to the right path. And if you're wayward, that means you're apostatizing. You're being drawn away on the wrong path. Uh, So that is to be avoided. All right, uh, at the bottom of 72, uh, Lady Wisdom here comes out with a speech, and many have questioned, uh, how are we to view her character? There have been several suggestions. Some say that she's sort of like a street preacher, and that this speech is a homiletic speech. It's a fancy word meaning uh, having to do with preaching or communicative style. Uh, Some would say that she's a a street preacher. Others have said, no, she's more like a wisdom teacher, a wisdom teacher. Others have said a prophetess, so that she's proclaiming uh, prophetically uh, information. And then others have said, no, more like a wisdom counselor. Uh, I think the essence of it is she sort of blends elements of all these different roles within her speech. And she is uh, interesting in the sense that She doesn't simply sit in a corner, does she? She cries out in the street. So she's very active and she's very outspoken. Now, in the ancient culture, would this necessarily be viewed as a as a good thing uh, for the the lady wisdom to be crying aloud in the street and raising her voice in the public squares? So why why is she pictured as a very outspoken woman? Uh, rather than simply sitting and waiting for the young men to come to her. Any thoughts? Well, I think that 
any thoughts of that? As I've wrestled through this passage, one one thought that I've had is it seems unique or unusual that she would be out and about in the public areas yelling, uh, raising her voice for the young men to come to her. It seems sort of culturally at odds with uh, what the expectations probably were for women in that society. Yeah, but the red light district was just down the street, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you have to stop them before they got there. Okay. <laughs> That's a good point. I was thinking along the same one lines because the adulteress is very aggressive. Mm-hmm. And so she is having to counteract the aggressiveness of the, you know, Lady Folly. And she can't do that if she's timid. Right. Okay, so she's going out and, and seeking. So, in other words, this this eliminates the, the the opportunity for the young man to say, "I didn't know." Okay, because public uh, wisdom is presented here as a public commodity. That is to say, it's available for the common man, for the common person. Uh, it's this reminds me of something that Jesus said when he was being accused by the Pharisees, and he said essentially, "I taught." Openly, everything that I've said. In other words, uh, I've n- done nothing in a corner. Uh, Paul says the same, similar thing in the book of Acts. So everything's been done publicly and out in the open. In other words, the truth has nothing to hide. The truth is an open public commodity. The young man is responsible in the marketplace of ideas to find the right message and to listen to it. Now, that's not, of course, we know theologically that because of our sin nature, we have a tendency and inclination toward evil. Uh, But at the same time, truth uh, is available in the public square. And so we're accountable for the truth. It's available to the young man. So it's not simply that he doesn't know. It's it's a matter of spurning the truth and the right counsel in order to pursue his folly. And that's really what it comes down to. So wisdom is out. She's proclaiming. Uh, there's nothing uh, hidden or esoteric about her message. All right. Uh, page 73. Uh, just a few things here to mention. Uh, as I, I noted, the tone is rather uh, acerbic, very forceful. And it's really to spur the young man to action. She does it. She wants to head them off at the pass before they start down the wrong path. So she's forceful in her presentation. Uh, so you, I also have there a structural model of, of how this speech uh, works. If, you, if we looked at it carefully, the center of the speech is verses 27 to 30. And verses 27 to 30 are perhaps some of the most forceful words of the speech. Uh, so, again, the focus here is on the young man. He has no excuse for spurning Lady Wisdom's counsel, so he is responsible for his decisions and actions. All right, so with that in mind, let's continue now, and we want to get into Chapter 2 tonight. So uh, if you have the next installment, we're on page 74, and Chapter 2 begins Speech 2. Remember that uh, within these ten speeches, there are three kinds of speeches. There are uh, calls to attention, calls to remember, and then warnings against the outside woman. So speech uh, one and now speech two are calls to attention. 
So Lady Wisdom is the sandwich between two calls to attention, and so she adds her voice to the fathers to wake up the young man, right? Sometimes young men need to be woken up. Uh, we spent a number of years out in uh, California, and for a time we were at John MacArthur's church, and I don't know if you've heard his testimony, but he had actually been drafted to play football by the Washington Redskins. He was a very athletic young man. And uh, he was sort of fighting God's call to him to preach. And one day he was out with some friends, got in a car accident, was essentially ejected from the car and skidded on the surface of the pavement. And that was a wake-up call to him. He was put out, laid out in a hospital for some time, and the Lord really got a hold of his life. And for many young men, they need that wake-up call. And this is what Proverbs is supposed to be, a wake-up call to listen and change your ways if necessary. All right, so here in chapter 2, I'll read these 11 verses, and you can uh, follow along, and then we'll discuss. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, indeed, if you call out for wisdom and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He holds success in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless. For he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair, every good path. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will protect you and understanding will guard you. Okay, so here we have the introduction to the speech, and we want to talk a little bit about this. He begins, again, as he has with the last speech and other speeches, with a personal address, my son, and then several conditional statements. If you do this, if you accept, if you call, if you look, and verse 5 then gives us the consequence or the motivation, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. And the, so this is the exhortation and motivation for what he's to do. And then 6 to 11 offer why this is the case. Why should he seek wisdom? And what's the consequence? Verse 6, the Lord gives wisdom and he gives success to the upright, uh, to those whose way is blameless. All right, so what is the father offering here in this second speech to the son? Why uh, is he making this particular appeal uh, and what does this add to what he's already said? So remember in chapter 1, he's warning the, the young man against gang violence or following these dissolute youth. Then Lady Wisdom makes her very pressing and urgent appeal to wake up the young man and get him to follow her, to pursue wisdom. And now the, uh, the father uh, begins what is a more gentle approach. This chapter is often... Uh, called the gentle speech. And part of the reason is uh, there aren't imperatives in this speech. Uh, you'll notice, for instance, in, in the other speeches, it, it often uh, culminates in, a, in an imperative. Remember in chapter 1, he says, if sinners entice you, don't do it. But here in chapter 2, he seems to take a more gentle approach. If you do this, if you do this, then this will happen. All right, so uh, the father seems to be, uh, after Lady Wisdom's very forceful 
and confrontational speech, he comes in with a somewhat milder and gentler tone. And what does this accomplish? Why is he doing it here and, and what is he offering? So as you read through this, any thoughts about what the father is is trying to motivate the son to do? Right, so it's it, it comes from God. Uh, the Lord gives wisdom. I, I love verse six. The Lord gives wisdom. What a what a great statement. That's where he needs to find it. This uh, is the uh, the essence of Job twenty eight. Right, you can go into the mine and you can try to find silver and gold, but you the wisdom comes from the Lord. It must come from above. All right. Any other observations about this speech? Not only what well. To me, it's nine. You'll understand what is right. Not only you know what's right and wrong, to go out and kill somebody is wrong, but you know why. You understand why it's wrong. To me, that's, yeah, insightful. And what's really interesting about the three words he uses in verse nine, right and just and fair, these are exactly the three words that that he was using in, uh, I think it was one, three, where he says uh, one of the purposes of the book is to receive correction so as to gain insight into these matters. So there's a lot of uh, what we call literary connections that are happening. Uh, Another one is the fear of the Lord in verse 5, right? So the fear of the Lord uh, echoes Proverbs 1-7, and then I think Lady Wisdom, uh, I think she makes a reference to the fear of the Lord. I'm not sure. I don't see it right in front of me. But uh, we have this this catchphrase that keeps appearing in different parts. Okay. Any other thoughts? Observations? 29. 29? Okay. Yes. I think we're just saying, is it an invitation to active participation? Okay. Right, so it's not a passive appeal. Okay. Kind of looks like he's trying to build a father-son relationship. Yeah. Right. Just like Jesus and the Father. Right. The Father and the Son. Right. A personal right. appeal. Right. Yeah, I, I would agree. And his his tone here seems to be very fatherly, affectionate, we might say. So, yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, Some other things to notice here. Notice how in verse 3, the father is echoing what Lady Wisdom said. He says, if you call out for wisdom and cry aloud, this echoes what Lady Wisdom herself did. Look at uh, 120. Wisdom cried aloud in the street and raised her voice in the public squares. Okay, so... Uh, as a response to Lady Wisdom's cry, the young man now is to cry out for wisdom and to to give himself over to the pursuit of it. This isn't something that you can't just uh, put a book under your pillow and the next morning you wake up and you're wise, right? This has to be something you are actively and earnestly pursuing, something that you're dedicated to. Uh, you know, if just like... If you ever played sports as a younger person, uh, it wasn't something you could just walk onto the court and be really good, right? You had to give time to training 
and to be uh, active in it. And that's what the young man is encouraged to do here, to pursue it. All right, I want to talk a little bit about what verse 7 uh, means in particular. He says here that he, the Lord gives wisdom and he holds success in store for the upright. Okay, I have a discussion here about some textual issues related to this verse, uh, page 74. Uh, I'm not going to get into that other than to say uh, there's two ways of translating this. One would be he will store up or as the NIV has, he stores up. And I think that's the right uh, way to translate it. But the idea is he he is holding success in store. In other words, it's almost like a layaway program. If you remember, uh, not many stores do this anymore, but he's sort of holding it aside for the upright so the upright can enjoy success. So let's talk a little bit about what that means. I think the NIV translation here of success might lead some to think that if I follow the wisdom of Proverbs, I'm more or less guaranteed to succeed in some way. So is, is the father here talking about success as we might imagine it here in 21st century America? Uh, when we think of success, what usually comes to mind? Probably, what's that? Yeah, material prosperity, right? Making money, uh, doing well at your job, getting promotions, living in a nice neighborhood, driving a nice car. These are all material benefits that we associate with success. Uh, is that what the Father is saying here, that the wisdom seeker will be rewarded with? Um, is, is it possible to be wise and still be poor? Okay, well, Jesus, Jesus was poor, right? Uh, so what does this mean that he will have success? Well, let me talk a little bit about this. Uh, on page 75... I have a discussion here about what this term means. I personally shy away from the translation of success because uh, I fear that it's too closely tied into material prosperity in America. Uh, So I would translate this as favorable outcomes, favorable outcomes. And so I mentioned this a little bit here in the middle of that paragraph. uh, There are some possible translations of the word such as success or good result, sound wisdom or prudence. Uh, in another language, the word means victory or triumph or even salvation. Okay, if you'll notice the middle paragraph there on page 75, uh, Michael Fox is one of the commentators on Proverbs and he proposes that the word denotes resourcefulness or mental dexterity. He says it's an inward power, not essentially intellectual, that can help one escape a fix. It is not inherently a moral virtue, virtue, and in reality, many honest people lack this gift. All right, so I think the best way to look at this is uh, favorable outcomes in the sense that if you apply yourself to wisdom, the Lord will help you so that you are blessed in the outcome of your activities. Now, that doesn't mean that you'll be necessarily financially prosperous, but I do think if you follow the advice of Proverbs, that will keep you from making financial mistakes in the sense that uh, you'll be prudent in how you handle your finances because the book is very concerned about money and how to handle money. Uh, but at the same time, it means that you will be blessed in in uh, your endeavors and activities. And I usually, when I think of this, I think of Old Testament characters such as Joseph, okay, uh, and this word, I think, is connected to him 
uh, in other texts of scripture. Uh, for much of his life, it looked like he was on a path down to uh, notoriety and destruction, right? He was in prison, seemingly rotting away in prison. And the Lord brought a favorable outcome. So the Lord will bless. Uh, I've seen this personally, you know, in uh, people who work in the business world, who live by their convictions. Sometimes they suffer as a result of that, but ultimately, often they do well because they're people of character and integrity. And it's hard to find a commodity like that, particularly in today's day and age. Uh, So if the young man gives himself over, he will be rewarded with favorable outcomes in life. Okay. Uh, You go to page... Yeah, thought? Uh, Isn't there also something to think about here, too? This being Old Testament and the dispensational difference... Uh, the 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 uh, absolutely distinct distinction between uh, Old Testament uh, Israel and the Church uh, there are two two entities uh, and the rules and the and the whole program was different wasn't there wasn't there actually in the Old Testament the idea of uh, material and monetary blessing for generally speaking for those who were obedient. Yes. So if you look at passages such as Leviticus 26 and 27, uh, if they're faithful to the covenant, the Lord will bless them with fruitful agriculture, uh, children, all of these things that that denote the blessing of the Lord. Now, uh, this is not prosperity gospel, because prosperity gospel says, uh, you know, if, if you do this, God's sort of obligated to bless you, materially speaking, and, and all these sorts of ways. But Uh, If we understand correctly the dispensational distinction, there was a covenant with Israel that was of a different character than uh, what the church has. So, for instance, uh, you know, Paul in the New Testament is collecting an offering for the poor, destitute saints. Uh, We have poor people in the church. uh, In the book of James, for instance, we have the the one who has to sit at the footstool because he's not well-to-do. So there's a recognition that there will be poverty and wealth within the church. We don't have the same promises that we can apply to the church. Uh, So we're looking at this as something given to Israel that would have promised uh, material success and obedience to the covenant. Uh, And so principially, that doesn't always apply in our situation. So... Yeah, it's a good observation. Okay, so uh, page 76, I just want to note this last thing. Uh, Longman says, this instruction is unusual. There are no imperatives. So the methodology is an appeal to pursue wisdom. Uh, So that's what the young man is to do. Okay, so let's look at the next two sections and we'll uh, try to get through through this. Uh, Page 76, the next two are rescue from perverse men. And rescue from the outside woman. He goes on to say, Wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men, from men whose words are perverse, who have left the straight paths to walk in dark ways, who delight in doing wrong and rejoice in the perverseness of evil, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words, who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. Surely her house leads down to death and her paths to the spirits of the dead. 
None who go to her return or attain the paths of life. Thus you will walk in the ways of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will live in the land and the blameless will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the land and the unfaithful will be torn from it. All right, so uh, in the earlier section, remember he had given an exhortation and motivation to the young man uh, with a a reward that the the Lord will protect him. Uh, And here he is focusing on two types of rescue, rescue from wicked men and rescue from the adulterous woman. So wisdom will save the young man from being caught up in the with these two sorts of individuals. So let's focus for a moment first on 12 to 15. How would we characterize these men uh, whom the young man is to avoid? How would you characterize them? Any words stick out there as you read through it? Okay, crooked, evil, okay, wicked. Perverse words. Right, perverse words and the perverseness of evil in verse 14. Okay, all of these words are related to someone who is twisted and morally out of out of shape. Uh, what's that? Morally, morally bankrupt. Right, morally bankrupt. So these are, are crooked men who will allure the young man to initiate himself in that same path. And they walk, verse 13 says, in dark ways. So their lives are characterized by darkness, by alienation, by perversion. They they love it. Uh, verse 14 says they delight in doing wrong. Uh, remember, again, this reminds me of Romans 1 where Paul says not only do they suppress the truth, but they have pleasure in those who do so. And so these perverse men... Uh, are to be avoided by the young man. Uh, there's something corrupting about a love for evil, a, a desire and inclination for it. So what does this say? Their, their consciences have been desensitized because they no longer feel pangs of guilt. In fact, they love their sin. They hold tightly onto their sin. And I, I think we see this in our culture today. Uh, people that are so steeped in their sin... They love it. They nurse it. They relish it. So the young man's to avoid that altogether. And then in the next section, he's to avoid uh, the adulterous woman. Uh, now there's some question about who this particular individual, this woman, is. Uh, let's just look for a moment at the context. What can you pick up about this woman from this section? What would characterize her? thoughts what type of a woman is she okay two-timer she's a she's a wayward woman okay right so uh remember she's on this path away from the truth uh verse 17 is interesting what does this suggest about her she's married okay she's married right so um the relationship that she's attracting the young man toward is not simply promiscuous or immoral, but it's adulterous. Uh, Verse 17 suggests that she's married. Uh, And the reason being, verse 17 says that she's ignored the covenant she made before God. Now, some have said that's the covenant that God had with Israel, 
But it seems that the better interpretation would be this is the marriage covenant that she has made before God. So she's ignored that. Okay? And what's the result or the consequence of pursuing her? Verses 18, 19. Death. Okay? So in other words, uh, it's sort of like she's... She lives in a haunted house with her paths lead to hell. So she is to avoid this woman. He is to avoid this woman because following her will lead him down the path to to death. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about the translation here of verse 16. I have some notes here. Uh, If you have an older version, you may recall this verse as talking about uh, for instance, the strange woman, right? The strange woman, if you have like King James. Uh, I would translate verse 16 as to rescue you from the forbidden woman, from the outside woman who speaks softly and smoothly. Uh, traditionally, this individual, this woman has been characterized as, for example, in the King James as the strange woman or as the foreign alien woman. Tyndale, for instance, in his New Testament translated, in his Old Testament translated, uh, the alien woman. So there are two Hebrew words here, Zarah and Nakri, and uh, we want to talk a little bit about what these mean. The first word is often translated strange. Now, if if you're reading this, and in, in, as we use the word strange today, uh, this verse often causes me to chuckle a little bit because. Uh, is Solomon really saying that she's peculiar, odd, or weird? Is she strange in that sense? No. So what? in what sense is she strange? Foreign. Okay. Foreign. And, and I think even more than that, uh, she is a, a, an outsider to the young man. Because uh, remember in, in verse 17... She made this covenant before God. There's a suggestion here and then in chapter 7 where she's trying to draw in the young man that she's offered her offerings. She says in verse in chapter 7 that she probably is within the context of Orthodox Israelite religion. So she probably is not even ethnically foreign to the young man. Okay, so let me talk a little bit about this. Bottom of page 76 the traditional translations of strange and alien are inadequate for several reasons. First, of course, strange uh, would denote that she's weird. Uh, and then when we use the word alien today, I've, I've moved away from this because I think science fiction movies have drilled into us that an alien is an extraterrestrial creature from another planet. Uh, so the idea is she's not strange and alien in that sense. Rather, she's very alluring, captivating, and desirable to the young man. So it's not that she is undesirable, she's simply off limits. It is impermissible for the young man to pursue her as a sexual partner. Uh, And moreover, I say in the middle paragraph there, Christopher Ansbury, who wrote a recent book on Proverbs, he gives several reasons why we probably should understand this woman as a married, upper-class Israelite woman who is the type of woman who might be particularly attractive to the young man who's going to be a future leader in Israel. Okay, so let me just point out a few of these points as we conclude tonight. Number one, she's presented on the whole as a married woman. If you look here at chapter 2, and then in chapter 5, and in chapter 6 and 7, there are references to her husband, or references to her violating her covenant. 
So these would seem to suggest cumulatively that she's a married woman who is violating her marriage covenant. Number two, the relationship she's trying to tr- attract a young man to is an adulterous one, meaning it's uh, she's violating the bonds of marriage. Number three, she's not described as any of the characteristics of cultic prostitution. Remember uh, when Judah uh, and, and his wife dies, he goes with his friend Adullah, and he stops by the road to go into a prostitute who, unbeknownst to him, is actually Tamar. Remember this story? And then later he can't find her, and so he's asking around, uh, did you see a Kedeshah, is the Hebrew word, a cultic prostitute? Well, that word is not used of this woman in any context, so it doesn't seem to suggest that that's who she is. Uh, number four, the, word, the adjectives used here, strange or foreign, are used in other places in the Old Testament to denote Israelites who are members of another family. And then lastly, she can afford costly luxury goods in chapter 7. Remember, she's got spices and linens that are imported and would be very difficult to obtain. So, in light of all this, I conclude here. It seems best to understand this woman is a married, upper-class Israelite woman who takes the opportunity afforded by her husband's neglect or absence to draw the attention of a potential male suitor. This late woman is connected to Lady Folly as the promiscuous embodiment of reckless foolishness. The young man's wife, on the other hand, likely to be connected to the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31, is the incarnation of Lady Wisdom. So I think the best way to understand this is she's a forbidden woman and she's an outside woman in the sense that she's outside that marriage bond. So she is to be avoided by the young man. Okay, this is a good place to stop, so we'll pause for this evening. Uh, We'll pick this up, Lord willing, next week and continue into chapter 3. Thanks for your good attention tonight.